At the Beanstalk Group, we love what we do, which is selling real estate in Los Angeles for top dollar. We specialize in smart, honest, detail-oriented representation with white glove service throughout the process. One of our favorite parts of the job is working with amazing people and doing good things for them. It's an honor to do what we do every day. Call us at 323-425-4918. We've been mapping out really a way to grow. It's a growth-minded group, a growth-minded chavura, a, 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 an idea that you know we want to do better, we want to live better. And I said an idea, I threw an idea out there last week, um, which I just liked, and it really worked well. But then I thought about it afterwards. I was like, what does that really mean? Um, and there was the idea of the Lubavitcher Rebbe. I, I think it's been the thing I've quoted most um, since I got here. It's one of my favorites. When he defines what's the word Lech Lecha, the Lubavitcher Rebbe says, Lech Lecha is go to you. Lech Lecha. The reason why Avram wasn't told where to go. He says, go to the place which I will show you. Just tell Avram the place. The reason he wasn't told the place is because Lech Lecha means go to you. Go to the root of your soul. Go find your essence and who you are. And there you'll discover what it is you need. So it's a nice idea, and it sounds like very self-help and very new agey. It sounds great. But I thought about it. What does it mean, go to yourself? Where's Avram supposed to go? He's supposed to walk around, dray around, and find himself. What does that mean, to go into yourself, to find your strengths? Like, let's talk specifically. What does that mean when we tell you, when we say, in general, find the authentic you, the real you? And we spoke about it a little bit the first time we were together, about the idea of... Um, you know, finding your bliss, that Jewish definition of bliss is different than the classic definition of bliss, and finding what it is you're here to do. So while I was thinking about this Lech Lecha idea, I was learning something else entirely different, and I'll tell you, I think it really sheds light on what it means to go find yourself. When you read a book and it says, we all have to find ourselves. So when you daven, do you shuckle, do you shake, or do you not to shake or not to shake? That's the question. Are you supposed to shuckle? Are you not supposed to shuckle? Technical machlokas. So I saw tshuva from Moshe Feinstein this week where Moshe Feinstein says that he stands perfectly still. Why? Because he remembers the way the uh, Russian, the Russians would stand in front of their general, in front of the commandant. He remembers seeing how they wouldn't budge for hours. They would stay straight. And he said, if that's how they stand before their commandant, then then certainly when you stand before God, you stand at attention, you don't move. He says, I'm not against anything else. I'm just telling you that's why I, if someone would see where Moshe finds the Indavan, they would see that he's just standing straight. So I looked around afterwards and I looked at the Mishnah Brura. And the Mishnah Brura says that he, he, shek, he shuckles, he shakes. Why does he shuckle? So one would think it might just be nervousness, like you just, you're moving, like what else are you going to do? Well, it's hard to just stay in one place, so we move. So he says, no, it's based on a Pasuk, and the Pasuk is, Kol Hashem, that all my bones will praise you, will speak of you, God. All my bones will speak of you, God, that all my bones should praise God. So what does that mean, that all my bones are going to praise God? So I understand he's using the metaphor of us moving, us moving. But what does it mean that our body praises God? The bone can't think. The bone doesn't know anything. So what does it mean that our bones will praise God? Do you notice every so often we hear these ideas that connect the body to like serving God? For example, um, the 613 mitzvot. They're often compared, and this is a comparison made in the Gemara and extensively by the Zohar. They're often compared to the positive and the negative mitzvahs. The 365 and the 248 are the limbs and the sinews in our body. They're parallel to the mitzvahs. And we have to try to 
live our entire body. What does that mean? What does that even mean? It's a nice idea that there's this parallel between our limbs and the mitzvahs. But again, our body is not animated. I mean, we animate it, but it doesn't have thought. So what does that even mean? We all learned in grade school why we shake the lulav, the estrog, the hadas, and the arava. And the medrash tells us that the four species are body parts, right? You have the mouth, you have the spine, you have the etrog is the heart. They represent the body. Again, what does that mean? It's our brain that needs to be engaged. It's our mind that needs to be engaged. Our heart doesn't think. We always say it's in your heart. There's nothing. Your heart's pumping blood. Your heart doesn't think. So what does that mean? Oh, to have an upright spine. You should be yashar. Your, your midos should be straight. Your brain, you should straighten out your priorities. What does that mean that you're supposed to stand? What does that mean when we talk about our body in this way? We do it a lot. We do it a lot. Another example. Take one of the sections of the Torah where everybody checks out it. You know where everybody checks out it? When they're reading about the Mishkan, right? You read about the construction of the Mishkan and everybody's gone. I'll tell you why I love that section. It's an insight from Rabbeinu Bachaye. If you keep this in mind, you'll never look at that section again in, a in, this way, in an other way. He says as follows. If you look at the parts of the Mishkan, it's described in a strange way. For example, it uses words that you don't have in the rest of Chumash. For example, the Tzala'os of the Mishkan, or the Yados, or the hands of the Mishkan or the raglayim of the Mishkan, the feet of the Mishkan. And you're looking at it, and there's about 15 to 20 different words in the description of the Mishkan that are human body parts. They're body parts. The Mishkan is being described in human body parts. Why? So Rabbeinu Bachaye says the reason is because the Mishkan is supposed to represent a human being. What's the Mishkan supposed to symbolize when you saw this tabernacle going through the wilderness, this, this, this hut that the Jews built? What was it supposed to symbolize? It was supposed to be a replica of the human being, how to build the human being. And that's why all the references to the Mishkan in the Chumash are all stated in terms of body parts. Because what you were doing by building the Mishkan was you were really building yourself. You were really building up the human being. And I can give many more examples of where the, the human body is a metaphor for serving Hashem. The lulav, the mishkan. For example, the sukkah. The sukkah is another example. The sukkah is specifically the walls of the sukkah, the schach of the sukkah. You also have a similar idea. They're all supposed to represent this idea of serving Hashem. So what, is, what does this all mean? What, what's the idea here? So I think this is the essence of what lech lecha, when we say go to you, means. I'd like to argue today that we all want to know the mystery of why things are the way they are or what's going on beyond, like what's happening. For example, when I open up to Q&A, like to eighth graders, specifically eighth grade girls and ninth grade girls, they're always focused on what's going to be afterwards. Guys want to know about demons and shadim. That's like the number one question. Are there shadim? How do I see them? What happens if I see them? Um, the, the, the question that focused, that uh, women are occupied with eighth, ninth grade, tenth grade is like, what's going to happen after we die? What's the Mashiach days going to look like? It's a very interesting topic. So the idea is that we want to know, we're interested in knowing what's beyond us. What happens beyond our space right here? What goes on beyond? But it could be the Torah is teaching you that everything we need is not beyond us. All the musr we need, all the lessons that we need in life, God put on the inside of us. That's exactly what happened with Avram. Avram is there raised in a culture that looks up at the stars, looks up at the sun, the moon, worships the sun and the moon, assuming that all the mysteries of life are going to be solved out there. That's why when Avram says, how do I know I'm going to have any children? God says, step outside. Say, 
Go out from your stars. Forget your stars. We say, Ain mazel be Yisrael. Jews don't believe in mazel. Doesn't mean luck. Jews don't believe in, yeah, like the constellations have to be aligned in order for you to have blessing in your life. We don't believe in that. Jews don't believe in horoscope deciding what's going to be their personality and what's going to be their life. It might indicate certain leanings, but it doesn't tell you what necessarily has to be. Why? Because maybe the answer to the mysteries are not out there. Maybe the answer to all the mysteries of life are put inside of us. And that's why God and Chazal keep referring back to these physical properties that are inside the human being. The body, the spine, the hands, the legs, because everything we need is right here. And I think once you take that definition, Lech Lecha changes. When Avram is told, Lech Lecha, go to you, what it means is, Avram, you're a searcher. You've been searching all over the world. You've been searching to find God, right? Some people go out to ashrams on top of a mountain somewhere. Some people go to this end of the earth looking for God. You want to find it? It's all the answers you need, how to live your best life, is inside of you. I quote you from the Sefer Chovas Halavavas, Rav Bachya Ibn Pakuda, one of the most important philosophical Musa works that we have. We have to investigate into how human is born. How all our limbs are put together and the function of each limb. Why? What is he, a doctor? What do we need to know this for? Why is this relevant? We need to know how to, you know, how to do this mitzvah, how to do the act of tzedakah, who comes first in tzedakah when I have to give to 10 people. We need to know what to do. No. It's the way for you to come in contact with the tzelem that's put inside of you. Tzelem Elohim, we're each created in the divine image of God, which means that what created us is going to tell us how to best live our lives, how to best serve God. It's a whole shift. The idea that we need to go searching and searching one more book, one more idea, um, you know, go hear one more thing that's going to change the way we think about X and Y. And you should always keep hearing Shirim. No one would be here if I sent everyone away, right? You should always keep hearing Shirim and all that. But the point is, at a certain point, everything you need is really inside of you. When you hear a great piece of Torah, it's waking up something inside of you that you already know. The Gemara in Nida says that a child is taught the entire Torah in the womb, but it's knocked over the mouth and forgets it when the child comes out. So Rabbi Yisrael Salanter says, so what's the point of teaching it? If you're just going to take it away, what's the point of teaching that Torah to the child in the womb? So Rabbi Yisrael Salanter says, the information doesn't go away. The information is just pushed internally. Your job here in this world is to work on accessing that information that's been pushed now to the inside. And now you have to access that information and bring it out. Because everything we need essentially is inside of us. So when we hear a great Torah, a great idea, you know, sometimes I have this feeling when I hear something, I'm like, I could have sworn I've heard it before. You could hear something. We hear an idea. Someone says something. Do we call it deja vu, right? There's Torah deja vu as well. You say, I know I've heard this somewhere. I can't figure out where I've heard it. It could be the same idea, that the answers are already encoded in our DNA. They're already there inside of us. Rambam writes as follows. What's the way to come to love God and fear God? When a person thinks about his actions and God's creations, and sees the great wisdom with no end, he begins to appreciate God. Meaning, look at this world. Look at yourself. Look what God has done. Look at a baby. Look what they have done and you appreciate. That's how you find what it is you need to know about this world. It's not some trans... Religion in Judaism is not some transcendental experience. People say they want to daven in Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur where they're going to fly in the sky. They'll be, they'll be with the malachim. They'll be all the way up there. 
That's great. If you could find that davening, that's amazing. But that's not the ikker of Judaism. Rav Soloveitchik said over and over and over that singing in Judaism shouldn't be what gets you high. You need to come to it from an authentic place and then you burst into song. Song is the result of turning inwards and finding your religion. Not, I need song to help me feel something. Or I need a certain chazen to help me feel X or Y. It's already there in you. You need to find it in you and then those other things augment. They're icing on the cake. They help, they help, you know, they help exalt the things that you are doing at that time. And I think that's what the Ram did. The first line of the Zohar. If anybody ever in a game show, anyone asks you what's the opening line of the Zohar, here it is. HaKadosh Baruch Hu istakal ba'araisa ubare alma. That God opened up a Sefer Torah and he created the world. What does that mean? It means that the blueprints for this world are from the Torah itself. This whole world is coded by words of Torah. For example, if we had um, special glasses, we would see that this table is not really table. It's really shin vav lamed chet nun. It's really shulchan. The Hebrew letters are holding up the world. The Balatanya, Rav Shnir Zalman of Liadi, when he was on his deathbed, the first Lubavitcher Rebbe, they asked him what he sees now while he's going into the next world. He was lying on his bed. He says, you know, always above my head, I saw a beam, the beam of the house when I would lay down. He says, today I see something else. I see kuf vav reish hey. Korah is the Hebrew word for beam. He was seeing what really is encoding this entire world, what's keeping it up, are Hebrew letters. Why? Because HaKadosh Baruch Hu istakol be'araisa ubare alma. God looked into the Torah and created the world. And therefore that DNA is holding everything up and that DNA is expressed in us in a very significant way and more significant that it speaks to us directly. So our body should be giving us messages about how to live as a human being. There is a slight machlokis, which I will tell you about. It's a machlokis, maral, and the vilnagon. What exactly that means? Maral says, your body has aspects of Hashem. Bechinas elokus. What that means is, you don't have God in you, God forbid. God's not divisible. He doesn't give out a piece here. Piece of God there, piece of God there. He's not divisible. What it means is, God gave you qualities and attributes that allow us to emulate God. For example, we have the ability to walk upright, that uprightedness tells us something about the midos by which God operates in the world. So our attributes that are given by God tell us how to imitate God. Vilnagon, Vilnagon says within us is a microcosm of every single thing in this world. Vilnagon says in our body, right? When God says nase adam, beautiful shot. When God says nase adam bitsalmenu, right? Let us make man. Famous line. And how many divrei Torah have been said? What does it mean, let us make man? There's others in the universe besides God? Who is God working with? There's no part. We don't believe Lahavdil that there was a, you know, chas v'sholem, a trinity. So who is God working with over there? What does that mean? So Rashi says it's the other malachim, that God wanted to make them feel like they're included. It was the humility, to teach humility to the people. Says the Vilnagon, it's not the pshat. You know what the pshat is? Nase adam, let us make man. God put in us the ability to complete creation, to complete ourselves. Let us means you human beings reading this Torah after I make man, after I make people, partner up with me in perfecting the world. It's like I quoted a Shabbos morning, how Avram Avinu, how he came to God, he was walking and he saw a bira dolekes. He saw a great tower. He saw a great palace that was illuminated. Or the other shot I gave was that it was burning. And suddenly he said, if it's illuminated, what a beautiful world. Who did this? And suddenly Avram came in. Suddenly God came in and said, Lech Lecha. The other shot we gave Shabbos morning was that it was Dolekes, it was on fire. 
And Avram said, is there no one here who cares about the suffering? Is there no one here who cares that the world is falling apart? And God says, Avram, I'm here. I've been waiting for you. Let's begin to work. That's what the Vilna Gona is saying. That Akadosh Baruch Hu said, Adam I'm putting in you everything we need to fix this world and make it a better place. Every tool, every concept for creation that's going to come forward, the concepts of E equals MC squared, every invention that's going to develop as time goes on, I've put it in your DNA. It's in your blood already. It's in your blood. It's already there. I met someone who's a Balchuva. Just talk about how God puts things in our DNA. I met someone who is the a Balchuva. And uh, they were talking how they, you know, they had to really fight their background. It was a background with physicality, you know, a lot of Gashmias. They were going on about the Gashmias of their background and, uh, you know, a lot of Yetzir Haras. And, I, and, and, she, and she was saying how I really, I changed my whole life. I changed my whole life and I became a Balas Tshuva. So she noticed that I have a book, a self-help book, whatever, from one of the self-help gurus. And uh, she said, oh, my father used to always read to me as a kid, Dale Carnegie. So Dale Carnegie is one of the, he's like the father of the modern self-help movement. But then it dawned on me. I didn't say that there would you know, rock her whole world over there. She thinks she did this on her own. But it dawned on me. She already had in her blood the DNA for self-improvement and correction and rectification. It was already there in her genes. She thinks she was fighting her past. She was, she was realizing her past. Meaning if her father was interested as a kid to read Dale Carnegie, what father reads to a kid Dale Carnegie unless the father's someone obsessed with self-improvement, self-help, self, self, working on the self. The fact that she came to Judaism and worked on the self was because she already had in her blood that idea of fixing and working and repair. It's, it's in our, it's encoded. Everything we need is already encoded from where we came from. It's already encoded in our blood. So I think the most powerful idea, the most significant idea that comes from this is that, yes, Oh, Dale Carnegie is just someone, you know, his famous book is How to Win with Friends. You know, how to, how, to, how to Make Friends is his famous book. He taught people how to improve themselves. You know, what's the full title? How to Win with Friends and something with people? And Influence, and influence People. Influence. He's the person who teaches people to be better. He was American writer. In the 50s. In the 50s. Yeah, you're talking about all positive things on how to improve yourself. What about the negative things that are in your DNA? Okay, excellent. Excellent. Excellent point. So let's assume that God put in us everything we need to... The mystery, of, I would say like this, the way to phrase it exactly, I think our Yisod is, the mystery of the entire world is already in us. The mystery of the way the world works is in us. When you look at it like that, then that could work for positive or negative. Even if our genetics are failing us, even if they're going against us, they're rebelling against us, that's still a message about this world. It tells us that sometimes things go away, things return. It's that that's mimicking life. Exactly when there are when there are people who do have things which which throw that DNA off for a curve throw the genetics for a curveball, or the body is thrown for a curveball, it's telling you it's exactly, it's explaining to you the mystery of life that's mimicking EO, that people will suffer, people will be missing, people will have lack. But it's sharing with you a message. Every message we need, the mystery, let our body's wisdom point the way. Let our body's wisdom point the way. And we rebel against it over and over and over. We ignore these messages and our body does send us messages. So number one, one message that our body sends us. And I'd like to just, I can keep going with this. I just want to stay on one level. I want to stay on the level of the cellular level, okay? Let's stay with cells. 
Okay, I just used that. I could have taken any organ. I think it would have done the same thing. So I'm just going to stick with cells so we can stay consistent. Number one, cells indicate that there is a higher purpose, right? Every cell in our body, when everything is going right, every cell in our body agrees to work for the welfare of the whole. Many times cell know that it's necessary to die in order for the body to keep doing what it needs to do. Skin cells, for example, they'll die. Skin cells will die by the thousands every hour to allow for the replenishment of the body, to allow for the immune microbes, the immunization of microbes to continue. That's what the cell's function does. It's supposed to replenish, it's supposed to correct, and it's supposed to fix. By the way, we were learning a few weeks ago in the afternoon share about how people live so long at the beginning of Bracious. So one, you could just say, it was a miracle and God made people live longer. Okay, everything's a miracle. But if you want a possibility, it's just a possibility because I can't prove it, but if you want a possibility of explaining it rationally, scientifically we can because we know that with the advent of the working class and people who are no longer hunters and gatherers, but we became builders that began the development of microbes and moss and different elements which affect the body, which affect the physical body and, and became meat eaters, carnivores, we became meat eaters becoming carnivores as well, we know had an effect on lifespan. When you put all these changes that's happened in the environment and including there whatever happened in the flood, when you put that all together, it would make sense why over time life would begin to dip. And then comes where God says to human beings, step in now and try to fix this problem, either through science or through research and health, whatever it is, try to put it back. Try to put back what we've broken. Try to put back creation the way it was, the way I gave you, the way I gave you originally. So number one, our cells tell us that there is a higher purpose. Number two, communication. Our cells tell us about the power of communication. Messenger molecules, they'll race everywhere in the body. They'll, be, they'll go to the farthest outpost of the body to get a message across to the rest of the body. Communication. Number three, flexibility and creativity. Cells adapt from moment to moment. Liver cells, for example, can perform over 50 tasks. Can you imagine that? Liver cells can perform over 50 tasks in order to get something done. They can regenerate. What? And they can regenerate, which is the most amazing thing. That's the most amazing thing. Let's talk about efficiency. Cells function with the smallest, the rule of thumb, the physics of cells dictate that they function with the, with the least amount expenditure of energy necessary. They are designed to be as efficient as possible. Number five, bonding. Because cells have a common genetic inheritance, they're able to, at least in a laboratory, be moved from one area to another. Uh, in a lab, a muscle cell can be genetically transferred into a heart cell. And the reason it could do that is because it shares a same basic language. It shares a same basic DNA that allows it to go from one space to the other. And number six, the immortality of the cell. What do I mean by the immortality of the cell? No one's immortal. The cells reproduce to pass on their knowledge. So even when the cell dies, the next cell already knows what it's designed to do. It's like the monarch butterfly, right? You know, the monarch butterfly starts its uh, migration from America, Canada, I think even, starts up from Canada, heads all the way down to South America and then back to its original place. It's not the same butterfly. It's, it's like 15 generations later before it gets back. How did the last one know that it's got a home, it's got a summer home back in Montreal? Who told the, who told the butterfly? How does it know that? 
that's the immortality of the monarch, but it's the immortality that God puts in each of us. That even when we're no longer here, the message that we leave stays behind. Whatever we've done, the, the influence, whether for big or for small, or for one word we said to somebody else, or for some, some gift that we've given to somebody else, that message stays on afterwards, and that the cell teaches us as well. Even when the cell is gone, it's already left its message into the cells that come after it in order to replenish, in order to rejuvenate what it's supposed to be doing next. So imagine you didn't have any Torah. You have the entire Torah. This now makes sense. Why would we talk about, you know, it's is far-fetched. You know, did Avram keep the Torah? Did Avram not keep the Torah? So based on Parshish Akev and hints and Sukkim and Parshish Akev, the Gemara in Sota says, the Avos and the Imahos kept the entire Torah. Kept the entire Torah. What does it mean they kept the entire Torah? There was no Torah given yet. How would they know? So you can answer prophecy. They knew because they saw life with perfect clarity and they understood that God built the Torah, built the world already from the Torah. So the whole Torah is already here in the world. It's inside of us. Everything we need to know. Now we can't look at ourselves and figure out how to shake the lulav or exactly exactly what to do. But on our lowest le- on our low level, we get an idea of how we're supposed to live. Looking at ourselves already tells us what God wants of us in this world. We might not have all the details flushed out, but that's what it means that Avram's ke- that Avram and Sarah kept the mitzvahs. What does it mean that Avram and Sarah kept the mitzvahs? They were able to look at the world. They were able to look at themselves and see the messages they needed to see. That's what it means. That's how they intuited. What does it mean they intuited? Because God already built the world based on the Torah. So everything you need is already in the grass. It's in the floor. It's all there. The messages are already sitting there. And it allows us It allows us to figure out what it is What it is that we need to do. What it is, how, it, how we need to live can already be gleaned from this world. So you take this idea which I think it's a new old idea. It, uh, what I'm trying to argue is that every time you see this thing comparing our body to mitzvot and serving and all that, it's telling us that our body is already encoded with everything we need to observe better, to live better. And we began by using this example of the cell development. The idea of a cell gives us already all the most powerful Musar messages we could ever imagine to live an amazing life. And it's a shame. We really fight our body. All the messages our body tells us, we live the opposite and we expect why are things going wrong. We're trying to figure out why nothing makes sense and we can't get it together. So for example, number one, we set about the cell a higher purpose, right? We live day to day on a very minute level. We live with such pettiness. The things that we allow to bother us are so small. We fight what our cell is telling us. Our cells are telling us, stop it. You're part of a much bigger picture. It's not about your little, as I said, the analogy last week, right? We talked about the uh, President Obama's at the table. And are you going to worry the fact that you can't get your shoelace tied? You can care less. You're sitting at a table with a president. You're more fascinated by the fact that a president's sitting at the table. You could ask whatever you want. The shoe's not going to concern you that you can't tie the shoelace because you realize what's happening here at the table is much bigger than your shoe. That's the idea of the cell. The cell's trying to teach you the little things, the petty things that we worry about and get stuck on, get hung up on. Stop. You're part of something much bigger. You have such a higher purpose that those little things, and that's what drives the greatest people, what drives some of the greatest ones to keep going in face of everything is purpose. Purpose drives them. I'm, I'm part of a higher purpose. So any setback that happens between here and there is going to be irrelevant to me. I will push it out of the way. We look at it and see that it must be cold. There must be, a, there must be a cold streak in them. But part of it is an ability to say, I am here for this goal. I Everything takes a backseat because I have put here on this earth for something bigger. Yes? Is that not hubris? 
So I, I once did a chuppah. I wonder if I brought, I maybe I brought this up to the group here that uh, under a chuppah I did a, a wedding in Florida where I told them to be la'olam nasem kabaranis. Persians should be like captains of their ship. And there was a priest sitting in the audience. He came over to me afterwards and says, isn't that a little hubris? But I thought about it. I think Judaism is a little brazen. Judaism wants you to believe that God gave you this unlimited power. Why? Because if you see yourself as a nothing and a schlepper, then it minimizes God's work in you. It says that God didn't make anything of you and God's work isn't perfect. By seeing yourself as an agent of tremendous change, yes, there is gaiva in that, but it's, it's, it's part of that gaiva is understanding that God made you amazing um, and, and God made you that way. You see, a Jew is supposed to live with both. Uh, Rav Simcha Bunim says every Jew should live with two coins, one in each pocket. One pocket says, Anochi Afer Ve'efer, I'm dust and ashes, I'm nothing. And the other pocket should say, Bishvili Nivra Olam, for me the world was created, the world was created for me. A Jew should live with, with that balance. Everything in life is of course, you can't let it all go to your head and say, I have purpose and therefore I'll wipe everybody out. But it's got to, but you, you need enough. Listen, what's Pshat Vahafta Lorecha love your neighbor as yourself. Just say, love your neighbor, give them love. Rav Shimon Shkup says, no love can be bestowed unto anybody else until you have an appreciation of yourself. If there's no love for a self, your barometer is nothing for how you're going to love somebody else. What's your litmus test for love? You can't appreciate yourself, then there's nothing to give over to anybody else. So it does start internally, and our ideas may sound a little bit hubris, but God is saying, so what? So what? So one idea is about this idea of living for a higher purpose. Paro wakes up in the morning, right, and he's disturbed. He has these dreams, and with the cows and everything, the seven cows and the and the stalks, and he has trying to figure out what's going on. And his dream interpreters are there, and they're telling him, "Well, you're going to have seven wives," and they're giving him all these interpretations of what's going to happen. He doesn't like any of it. Why does he not like any of it? What, what, what's, why not? They were good. I mean, to me, it sounds as good as anything. Else. If they've been working for him all along, why don't they work for him now? So Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky says the following, a beautiful insight. He says that once he was calling Rav Moshe Feinstein to uh, ask, to wish him, it was Mazel Tov on something. And the phone was ringing and ringing and ringing. Mm-hmm. Again, the phone was ringing and ringing and ringing. And again, the phone was ringing and ringing. And then uh, the family said, you have no direct line how to reach Rav Moshe. I mean, Rav Moshe needs to be accessible. He, he must have some emergency. People go to him when they have to make a last-minute decision of Siamese twins and they have to split. People go to him for things they need last minute. You don't have Rav Moshe's. Uh, so he says, I have Rav Moshe's other number. He goes, but you have to understand something. Everything has a purpose. I'm just calling to wish Mazel Tov. That gets the regular line. If it's something that's much bigger and earth-shattering, then I know I'll find the other number. I'll find the other way to reach him. And what's the point, Sir Kavanetsky? Paro felt, even Paro at that moment felt, something bigger is about to begin now. Some higher calling is happening now. And it's funny, Rav Yaakov learns it from somebody negative, but you could learn most of remember it. Rav Yaakov, uh, Paro knew that something bigger is happening now. My dream can't be some small petty thing that how many people am I going to marry? Who am I going to marry? It can't be that. Paro saw himself as part of something bigger developing. Well, he thought it was for the development and the beauty and the majesty of the Egyptian people. He didn't realize that what he was building towards was he was going to allow Yosef to come in, fix his country, and strengthen the Jewish people. He didn't understand that he was part of that mission, but Paro understood that he had a higher purpose. And that's the first message that ourselves give us, that we are here for a higher purpose. And that's why he wasn't content just with that little message. Um, I think the story that bothers almost everybody the most in the Torah is Sarah sending out Yishmael and Hagar. Come on, why are you sending them out of the house? 
So I can't do a good answer for it right now in 20 seconds, but just use higher purpose as a possibility in understanding the story. Sara understood that the future destiny of humanity and the Jewish people hinges upon the preservation of Yitzchak's um, pure identity. It, it hinges on Yitzchak's identity and Yitzchak developing the way he needs to develop. When you understand that Yitzchak's development, the, the salvation of the world, billions of people, hinges upon Yitzchak coming out the way he needs to come out, you can better understand why Sarah would say, I'm sorry, Hagar Yishmael, not here. It's difficult and it's painful for anybody to understand why anybody would be kicked out of a house. But when you understand the mission is preserving the future saving of the world, you can understand it. Uh, you can understand a little better. Decisions that are difficult in the Torah begin to become a little clearer when you understand it that way. It's one of the answers to the David and Bathsheba saga. Why David took Bathsheba and sent Uriah out to war so he could marry her. So I think the easiest answer for me. It's the hardest. It's the hardest and easiest. The easiest answer is just to say like Ramchal. That some anytime you see the seeds of the Mashiach being planted, God took away free choice. Anytime Mashiach is being planted, those situations God took away free choice, and it makes sense because the craziest stories in the Torah are always when free ch- when when uh, when the Mashiach is being planted. Example: Lot sleeping with his uh, two daughters, right? Right after the world's just destroyed, and this is what he does. It doesn't make sense, but who's going to end up coming from that? It's going to end up coming from that is root is going to end up coming from that. And from root is going to come King David, from David Shlomo, from Shlomo Mashiach, and then the salvation of the world. Take any example of when the seeds are being Yehuda and Tamar, crazy story in the Torah. How does that make sense even for Yehuda? It would make sense according to Ramchal. Free choice is taken away whenever the seeds of Mashiach are being planted. But going back to the King David story, if you understand it as part of a higher calling, a higher purpose, you maybe begin to have an answer. But you have to be careful with that. I do, I do agree. I do acknowledge that. Right, right. Listen, I mean, some so of the people have made. Ma- no, you're right. No, people, people have to make those decisions all the time. The Israeli government has to make decisions. There's a great shuv from Rav Shal Yisraeli about a bomb. If a missile is coming towards Israel, God forbid, and it's going to a town of a small population, does the Israeli government have the right to divert the missile to a town? Sorry, it's going to a town with a large population. Can they divert it to a town with a smaller population? Making a decision like that is based on a certain sense of a higher purpose. We need to make calculations here. We need to make these kind of judgment calls. You're right, you have to be very careful, but at least let's take the Musa on a simple level of our bodies telling us that we're here for a higher purpose, a higher calling. We're not gonna have time to go through all the examples, but the second idea is we said the cells are there to tell us about the importance of communication. I think it's why God left so much of the Torah unspoken. For example, for men who wear tefillin, they don't know what color it's supposed to be. Who told them it's supposed to be black? Like, how do we know that? Fasting on Yom Kippur. Who told you you're supposed to fast on Yom Kippur? You know it says in the Torah you're supposed to afflict yourselves on Yom Kippur. Maybe it means you're supposed to smack my head over and over. But how do I know it's supposed to mean I'm supposed to fast? So much is left unspoken because it tells us the, that Judaism continues based on communication. It needs the relationship. It needs the contact of a Rebbe and a student, of going to a shir, of the back and forth, of two people coming together and learning and discussing. Judaism survives based on communication. It's why the end can't just be you know, going online and disconnecting yourself from other people. Judaism always demands that connection. No matter what happens, it will always demand that connection. 
So we saw this idea today of the idea of the connection of the how the human body gives us everything we need to know about how to live. We're not always attuned to those messages. In fact, we fight the message that the human body tells us. It's screaming at us, and we fight it. But it's there to allow us to live our better lives. Mm-hmm. My bracha just ended, ended today that in the in the bracha of Avraham, given to Avraham of Lech Lecha, Lech Lecha wasn't a mission. Lech Lecha was a bracha that Avraham, you should be able to go to you and find all the answers you need within you. May we be able to find all the answers we need by looking inwards and taking some time to think, to be thoughtful, and to do some introspection. We'll stop there for this week. I thank you.